Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this beautiful Thursday morning in April. April showers bring May flowers, and we're looking forward to those flowers this year. And flowering is Rosemary Mahoney. Good morning, Rosemary. Good morning, Vernon. How are you? Great. When I look at your accomplishments, I think you've been budding and flowering and getting things to grow, <laughs> normally cooperatives. <laughs> well, thank you. So thank you for taking time to be with us today. I'm at the NCG spring meeting. National Cooperative Grocers? Yes. Okay. Yes, NCG. They're having their spring meeting and their annual meeting. So I'm an outside director on their board, and uh, I've been down here for a couple of days. Okay. First off, congratulations to being inducted into the 2018 Cooperative Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It, is, it really is an honor. It's kind of humbling, I have to say. And on May the 2nd at 6 o'clock, there's going to be a dinner at the National Press Club in honoring the four inductees this year, which Rosemary Mahoney is one of those. And I was honored to be on the selection committee, and it was tough. <laughs> it was tough, Rosemary. Well, I've done it in the past. It is hard. It is tough. I mean, just some great people that have made lots of contribution, and you were right there at Right there with them. So oh, you started you. this with, you were looking at your resume. You started this when you were about two or three years old, right? Well, to accomplish not. all of this? <laughs> <laughs> I just worked on weekends. Okay. No. <laughs> no, I started working with cooperatives when I got out of graduate school. So 1987. So how did you learn about cooperatives? Well, honestly, I kind of learned it on the job. So my master's degree is in agricultural economics from the University of Illinois, and when I was finishing my degree, I was interested in working with farmers, but, you know, I didn't necessarily want to be a banker or, you know, sell feed or inputs or anything like that. And so when I went to the um, American Association of Ag Economists and was interviewed in the job fair, one of the groups I, I um, was interviewed by was the um, Agricultural Cooperative Service. And so they hired me to be a cooperative development specialist. And so, you know, for the most part, they, they taught me about co-ops. I mean, I knew, knew them a little bit. My uncle worked for cooperative, but, you know, they taught me about cooperatives and they taught me about business development. And so I worked with them for four years before going overseas. So I, so I really kind of come late to the co-op movement. I was 50 something. So, okay, you were not late. <laughs> you were not late. I learned about co-ops as I was managing housing co-ops and fell totally in love with this model for what it, what it accomplishes. So you started in 1987 out of graduate school. I just, I'm curious, how do you get agriculture economics as a major? How do you go there? I was raised on a farm in western Illinois. And so when I, 
um, you know, I grew up working on the farm. And so when I went to school, I studied agricultural business as my undergraduate. And I went back home and, and worked on the farm for a year and a half and then went back to graduate school. And, and in my undergrad, I mean, the courses that I really enjoyed the most were the economics courses. And so moving into ag econ was a pretty easy transition with a couple bumps, but for the most part, it was a good choice. And then I specialized in agricultural policy, which I found really pretty interesting and did research on farm family income during the, at the time was a, a farm crisis uh, in the you know mid to late 1980s. That's how I got into econ. What is economics? What is it? It's the allocation of scarce resources, right? The application of labor and capital towards production and productivity. And for me, I'm not very quant-oriented necessarily. I'm much more interested in in kind of the, um, I would say, the multidisciplinary approach to economics, kind of why people behave the way they do. In some ways, why don't? In other cases, you know, it's kind of more interesting why they don't behave in the way you expect them to do. So um, I'd say I'm a little bit more on the social side of AggieCon, certainly than the, than the quantitative side. But for me, it's really interesting is, that, you know, you know, think about some of the externalities, like the things that we don't as a country think about in terms of like costs, right, that we don't factor in environmental costs or we don't factor in social costs. We only look at kind of the financial bottom line. And I, I feel like you know, I'm just kind of, I find that stuff really interesting and, and think that if we took a broader view of value, a broader view of costs, that might be a really interesting conversation. And interesting conversation probably changed perhaps some of our policies and outlook. Absolutely. I think it would force us to have a longer term perspective. Right. We would we would we would make our investments differently, I believe. If you look at what I was taught in the MBA program, Masters of Business Administration, decisions were made on what's the maximum return to the investor. Mm-hmm. And that's right. normally very short term look. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly, and I, I, yeah, sorry, I keep yeah, no, I say like this quarter. If if the long term view would be a year, but it's more like what's the what's the impact right now? Well, exactly, and so you know, if you're if you're managing a company with a ninety day perspective, the choices you're going to make aren't necessarily the ones that build a strong, sustainable company. Something that's going to last into the future, and I think we've, you know, we've kind of. You know, I, I I hate saying it this way because I feel like an old person, but I but I feel like we're, we're kind of losing that, and and I think that there's there's uh, we need to get some of that back. That you know, you make choices that may not may not be the best choice for giving back returns in 90 days, quarterly returns, but they're going to be paid off in five, ten years down the road. But you got to be you got to you got to do both. I've talked on this program a lot, Rosemary, about a couple of research pieces that the National Co-op Bank has funded to look at housing co-ops. And they compared HUD-funded housing co-ops compared to HUD-funded apartment buildings. And housing co-ops outperformed the apartment investments in every variable. Mm-hmm. A lot of it because the people in the housing co-op took a longer-term view and replaced rules when they needed to be replaced and fixed things. And... So the physical plant was better 40 years down the road than the apartment was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rents were lower because people took better care of it and they didn't have the investment uh, a piece of uh, getting uh, increases every year. Increases happened when costs went up, not because of investments. People enjoyed their 
community better because they were a part of it and they made decisions. To See, look at every aspect, social. Oh, they also had savings in affordable housing. They talked about a 7.1% return off of their investment of whatever they put in their membership fee, but they also didn't consider the write-offs, the tax write-offs, and the lower cost, the opportunity cost. So it was huge in terms of investment. And, you, and I asked myself, Rosemary, why we don't as a country then, as HUD, put more money into co-op housing than in apartment buildings? And it would be the same thing with this longer view of agriculture or any other part of our economy. So why don't we make those investments that just really make more sense? <laughs> just <laughs> so much more sense. Well, I guess the two-word answer would be vested interest. <laughs> but, uh, right. And I think, I think the other thing is, 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 is we both know is, is, you know, co-ops are just not that well-known as, as an organizational model and as a business model. And I think, um, you know, it's within the co-op community, obviously it's something we've talked about for years. And I think in some ways we're doing a better job, but it's, but it's still a, a missed opportunity, right? That what we need, I believe, is when people have a problem they're trying to solve or they have an issue they're trying to solve, that they think of a co-op themselves as a potential for solving that problem or creating that opportunity as opposed to people who really know co-ops going out and looking for problems that they can solve. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, that's a real challenge. And I, and frankly, I'm not exactly sure how you get to it. I think in some ways, uh, you know, a, a cooperative solution to a, you know, kind of a, a large burning problem that, that, that brought recognition to the model would get a lot more people thinking about, Hmm, could I use a cooperative in my community or in my business space? Um, but that's missing. And without that, I think we miss probably tons of opportunities where cooperatives could be really valuable because people just don't know it. They don't know about it. Well, you mentioned vested interest, but I want to go back to that because that, that fits to me of people not knowing about it also. So can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by vested interest? You said it well, quietly. I think, <laughs> I'm still kind of walking around the hotel looking for a quiet space. Oh. But uh, what I meant by it was that, you know, when a system or a, is set up in the way that it's set up, people have a vested interest in that remaining the way it is, right? And so, you know, in any case, when I think when, when you change the way something's arranged, there's going to be some winners and there's going to be some losers. You know, I mean, look at you know, the president talking about a trade war, well, or, or, or you know, tariffs. I mean, when he does that, he's essentially selecting who's going to win on trade, but he's also selecting who's going to lose. Okay. And so, you know, the farmers and everybody else who see, you know, tariffs as a threat are going to say, hey, wait, no, wait a minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got a vested interest in the way this trade is set up right now. And they're going to push back. And so that's what I mean by that. So I think, you know, I'm not, as familiar with housing and probably okay. only familiar enough with cooperative housing to be dangerous, but we'll come back. If, and if you went, I got to take, we got to yeah. take our first break oh, and sure, we'll sure. come back and continue this conversation about vested interest and how people make choices in short-term versus long-term. We're going to take our first break, get the weather, the news and the traffic, and we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down.
information is power. At least if you get the information and put some action to it, then that's where you get your power. So that's why WOL makes a great, great partner for this program. National Co-op Bank is giving you information about cooperatives. So perhaps if you have a community problem, as we were just talking, you could create a cooperative to solve that problem if you know about them. So what we were talking about before the break, Ms. Mahoney, is vested interest. See, I have a little bit, you said if the system has is in a certain way that some people wanted to keep it that way, some people will win or lose if you make changes. But when I look at the apartment piece and I versus co-op piece, the people that own the apartment buildings in that system are normally people with capital. Mm-hmm. And they, their vested interest is to keep making money off of those apartments, and so mm-hmm. they want to get the grants and the loans and, and you know low interest loans from HUD to create apartments for affordable housing, because they make good money off of it. Where if you gave the money to cooperative housing, then the residents own the property, the likelihood of there being much profit is slim because they keep their rents low as they possibly can for affordable housing. But if there were profits, then the residents would get that profit. So I find that the vested interest is for those folks with capital, and then they give money to hire politicians, and the politicians create policies that will benefit them. So that's my sister. Now I was told once on this program that I'm sinister about that, but I really believe that's well, it's true for me. I, yeah, I share your cynicism as well <laughs> in that respect. I think, um, and I, but I, but I, would, I guess I would say on a, you know, if you kind of give people the benefit of the doubt, the other part of it is it's hard to do something differently, right? So if I've been an affordable housing developer doing it this way for a number of years, and I'm meeting the goals and the objectives that are set by HUD or, or whoever and my own my own board of directors, then, you know, I feel like I've got a successful model. I've got a successful recipe. And, you know, so to change that is a little bit of risk. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm unlikely to change. Something happened in the housing part that they were doing, developing a lot of co-ops in affordable mm-hmm. housing in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then something happened within HUD, within policies that changed that. So Mm -hmm. to get developers Mm -hmm. to go back to creating co-ops, because co-ops, and one lady on this program said that co-ops are hard work to get people to where they will make decisions, to understand how to make decisions and then make decisions. That's where the training, the fifth principle comes in. And that Mm -hmm. takes work and effort. And so sometimes creating a co-op, housing or other, it'll take more Mm -hmm. time on the front end. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That's been my experience. What about yours? Or you're developer. Well, I, you're more developer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do housing co-ops. I know, though. I know. Although I lived in one in grad school, I just remembered that. I think that's. I think that's right. I mean, to set up a cooperative properly, right? I mean, you need several things, but but two that you really need is you need to have make sure that the members have a have a true understanding of what it is they're taking on and what their role and obligation in that is going to be. And and then helping them, you know, to the extent they need it, to step into those rules and to be trained and to be, you know, informed about what they're going to do and and the amount of time it takes and, you know, all of that. And, you know, depending on what you're doing, a co-op can take a fair bit of time on the parts of the founders. And so I think, 
you know, we certainly live in a society where many of us feel like we just don't have hardly any spare time. And um, so, you know, there's there's that element to it. Then the other is, you know, and a housing co-op, of course, has its own economic or its own business model. But for any co-op, they've got to be successful businesses. They've got to be successful entities in whatever space they're operating. And so you have, you know, you, you have to have that piece as well, which either means the capital that you need to really start it, the reserves you need to to run it, you know, the business volume you need to to succeed, you know, the talent you need to manage it and operate it on a day to day basis. I mean, you have to have all of those things. Same thing with the co-op. All of those things you need. Yes, you may not need them all on day one, but you need them eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that's all got to be part of the plan in mm-hmm. terms of how you're putting it together. And so I think if you know, if I were affordable housing developer and I and I looked at that, I might say, Oof, that's a big lift, and it adds some additional costs, right? I got to do the governance stuff. I've got to do, you know, you know. So I, I might be reluctant to do it. And so part of what I think about in terms of like starting co-ops, or if you want, you know, we can do lots of one-offs, you know, co-op here, co-op there. But if you really want to get into a space where you're, you're really changing that space because you're you're able to put lots of cooperatives into it, then I feel like, you know. Is there a way that we can change that paradigm a little bit? Can we make it easier for people to have a cooperative? Yeah, I don't know that I know the answer to it, but I think that if we don't answer it, then what we're going to have is, you know, kind of what we have right now. Or you're just going to need some opportunity where, where the cooperative solution is so obvious and so quickly rewarded that people will put a lot of cooperatives into that solution. So. You said that when you first got started, they taught you about co-ops and how to develop co-ops. And mm-hmm. on your resume, that's what you've done a lot of, is developing mm-hmm. co-ops. Could you take us through the steps for developing a co-op? And are these consumer co-ops or worker co-ops or what kind of oh, co-ops? Oh, I've done <laughs> I've done a few different. I mean, certainly when I started out at the Department of Agriculture, I was working primarily with farmer cooperatives. So farmers were the members. In some cases, it was rural crafts people. So it was all rural work. Uh, over the years, I've, I've, I've done a lot of work with purchasing cooperatives as well, so cooperatives of independent businesses. And then um, my international work is almost entirely agriculture. And so that's, again, but it's smallholder farmers. So you'd be talking, you know, farmers that have, you know, two to five hectares generally, and their only tool is a hand hoe for farming. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of agriculture. Yeah. So essentially the, you know, the, the steps are that, you know, somebody's got to identify the need, right? The common need or the common challenge that, you know, confronting their community. So let's say it's farmers, you know, they say they can't get, you know, they have trouble selling individually. They, they could negotiate better if they were in a group, they could get access to seed or inputs if they were in a group, things like that. So they identify what the opportunity the need is. And then they, you know, you put together a steering committee or a group of those farmers who say, we're going to explore this idea. And then there's, of course, the fact finding in it, which is, you know, what does it take to form a co-op? What's it going to cost me? You know, so you kind of do a preliminary, I would say some feasibility work and just say, this is what this is and this is what this is going to take. And the, that group should talk about it itself about whether they have uh, the resources or the energy to do it, right? Is there enough value there for them individually to go ahead and continue forward? And does it look like it could succeed? And if it does, then they need to start putting together, you know, those additional details, which would be a business plan, 
you know, their founding documents to say, you know, this is a business plan and say, this is the amount of volume we're going to have to have to succeed. This is what it's going to take to finance this. This is what, you know, the governance and the structure of this thing is going to look like. And then, you know, you would have to, if they, again, agree that that all seems doable, then they have to start executing it. So they would, you know, incorporate, they, they would start with their founding members. They would start to, you know, grow their membership according to their plan, start their operations, you know, find startup capital. You know, it's, it's like at that point, it's just like starting any other business, except that you've got the governance piece of, of it being a cooperative. And I guess that's where it takes more time. It Maybe can, so yeah. People understand the governance piece and their responsibilities. Right. And, right. and for mm-hmm. uh, if, if a group has the resources, right, they they can hire an outside consultant or a co-op development center or somebody like that, you know, to help them get through that process. And that can that can help certainly do that startup piece, that fact finding, feasibility, business planning piece. You could do that a lot quicker because you've got somebody working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, they, but the trick there is that, you know, you can help people do that, but you can't do it for them. So, yeah, you can help them put together a feasibility analysis. You can help them put together their business plan, but they got to own it. <laughs> it's right. got to be theirs. It can't be yours as a consultant. Okay. And so so I just real quickly, uh, you said something. I'm going to go back to you. said that a lot of farmers international had a couple of hectares, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to look that up as two and a half acres approximately. So if they had yeah, two so hectares, it'd be about five acres. Five yeah. acres. Okay. So a yeah. small piece yeah. of land, mm-hmm. five, five football fields from zone, from end post to end post. I try to get what an acre is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we got about five football fields. Okay. We're going to come back, and I would like for you, if you would, we're going to take our next break here, but I'd like, if you would, just maybe think over the break and tell us, give us an example of either an international uh, co-op that you have to create the steps that they went through and where they are and maybe something nationally that you helped to create and where they are and how much time did it take to, to for these different steps but we'll be right back to the Cooperative Hall of Fame 2018. And on May the 2nd at 6 o'clock, there's a dinner honoring her and three others who's being induced into the Cooperative Hall of Fame. And if you would like to get more information about that, you can go to cdf.coop. That's cooperativedevelopmentfoundation.coop, and you can get information or buy tickets or make donations. This is CDF Cooperative Development foundation's major fundraiser for the year and a great way of honoring and getting the word out because as rosemary has already said today is people don't know about co-ops and don't know that co-ops can solve community problems and so you could come and listen to what these great people have done and before we took break rosemary i'll ask you if you could think about a couple of projects one internationally and one nationally that you may have helped to develop and take us through those steps so if people saw a problem, and that problem could be, I need jobs, it could be rainwater is going into the Potomac, it could be 
almost anything. You have a problem in the community, housing, financial for credit unions. But if you anything that you see is a problem, you can create a co-op to solve it. So give us a couple examples, please. Okay. First of all, I thought you said international or national. Right. Well, one, That's okay. Yeah. I'll come up with one. another one. But um, so, you know, given my age, I have to go to one of the most recent ones that I've worked on, which is here in the U.S., and it's uh, Blue Hawk Cooperative, which is a cooperative of HVAC, so heating, ventilation, and air conditioning distributors here in the U.S. And so, you know, in that case, I, I, you know, I got a phone call from a guy who ran a distributor in Chicago and said, you know, I want to look at a cooperative. I read about them in Crane's Business Journal of Chicago. I read about, you know, True Value or whoever it was. And he said, you know, look, you know, there's a bunch of co-ops in this space, um, but they're closed. They won't take any more members. And so the independents out there who aren't already a cooperative, you know, we're most of us are aggregating buying groups. So we know we're not getting good deals. We're not getting as good a deals as, as the guys who are in co-ops. And so we want to look at doing a co-op. So, I put together a team to work with him and said, you you, know, you have to be our partners in terms of bringing the sector expertise to this project. And so the first thing we did was he put together a group of like six or seven uh, business owners in that space that would be respected by other owners. And people would say, well, you know, if, if John's involved, then that's something I think I should take a look at. Right. Mm-hmm. And we we laid out of, you know, what the steps would look like um, to put together a cooperative and that plan included, you know, probably three or four go, no go decision points. And this, this steering committee was going to have to manage that. And so the first thing we did was we, you know, we did feasibility analysis of the sector. Cause one of the concerns was if there's already a bunch of co-ops in this sector, you know, first of all, is there enough people who are not in cooperatives to make this work? And second of all, will the vendors in this space agree to work with another cooperative, right? So, you know, we, we got that done in probably about six weeks. And the re- response was that, you know, the real opportunity was this is a space that knew co-ops. The vendors were used to working with co-ops and liked working with co-ops. And so, you know, it was something like that it was likely to be able to work. And so we helped put together the, or, you know, working with an attorney, of course, to help put together the organizational documents to form this cooperative and then had the founding meeting with the with the steering committee and they became the board, you know, did all of their founding resolutions, accepted all of their legal documents, uh, the membership agreement, all of that stuff. And then we went out and kind of actively started recruiting members. And once we got to a certain, and we put together the business plan and that was approved at that meeting as well. So, and then we started recruiting members. And once we got a certain number of members, I don't recall exactly what that was, then we started negotiating with vendors to get some deals, some early deals, and then that would help us bring in more members. And so then it just becomes kind of a step process. You bring in a certain amount of volume, and then you can get at more more vendors who will negotiate deals with you. And then they also hired a CEO. And, of course, in this case, you know, they hired Lance Rantola, who was very familiar with purchasing co-ops, had worked with him for a number of years. And so, you know, he was able, you know, this cooperative grew quite quickly. They had, you know, something like 300 members within, you know, 18 months or something. But I'd say from the point of that first phone call until we had launched the cooperatives and recruiting members was probably less than six months. But in that case, you know, in that case, you're working with business owners who have resources, you know, um, highly motivated to do it, particularly once they saw what the, what the value was going to be, you know, so that's, that's one where it's, it's a little bit, I won't say it's easy. There's always complexities in it and you need to make sure 
people are aligned and understand what they're doing. But it wasn't um, it wasn't overly difficult, and it's been, in my opinion, quite successful. I want to go back a minute and make sure that I have it and other people who are listening have it. So in this case, these are people that distribute heating, ventilation, air conditioning units. So they're, they're not the manufacturer. These are companies that distribute this product. Right. So their their customers would be contractors, right? Right. Um, for the most part. Yes, and, that, and that could be either residential or it could be commercial. All right. Or it could be both. Right. So that's called a purchasing cooperative. So there's basically mm-hmm. four types of co-ops real quickly. Is one is if the employees own the business, then it's a worker cooperative. If it's owned by the customers, it's a consumer cooperative. An example of those are credit unions and housing co-ops. And a purchasing co-op is when people come together so they can buy things together and hopefully they'll get a better product or as good, if not best product, at a lower price. And if you form that co-op, then they can hire staff who become experts at dealing with the manufacturer or whoever they're buying from. And then you can have a marketing co-op. If you're making something, you could end up marketing. And farmers are ones that have purchasing co-ops and they have marketing co-ops. Those are the basic four. So in this case, mm-hmm. it is a purchasing co-op. And so it took you six months. That's wonderful to, to get people together, get up to 300 or so different uh, distributors throughout the U.S.? Is that correct? Yeah, it took longer to get 300 in. It took about you know, 18 to 24 months to get up to 300. But we had the co-op up and going, and I, I think it was profitable within a year. Or it, it was cash positive within a year. It was probably profitable within two years. Cash positive is best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that, you know, in those co-ops, and looking, and the other reason they're not, complex is because or they're, or they're less complex is because you know this type of a purchasing cooperative doesn't handle the product it only negotiates the deal and the rebates and the you know and, and things like that and, and then tries to and then works really hard to get its members to use the deals the cooperative has put in place and so from a vendor's perspective or a manufacturer they they, they like these cooperatives because they save them on marketing right mm-hmm. if i can really deliver my members to buy the Buy the product. You know, if you give me this deal, I'll I'll do my best to deliver those members. And if you're if you can do that, you know, vendors will work with you because it helps them on their marketing. Right. And so, looking up and, Blue Hawk, I see they have mm-hmm. eight staff members. Yeah, yeah, they're small. They're small cooperatives. Generally, uh, it's small, and at the same time, that's the staff that helps all of the members. How many ever there are mm-hmm. get better deals and negotiate the contracts. That's why I like dealing with mm-hmm. purchasing co-ops. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go out and do all of that, reading all of the contracts and negotiating the contracts. They go do that for me. Right, Neat. right. Well, I mean, you know, if you're sitting out there, you know, Vernon, let's say you own an HVAC distribution, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you could walk up to, um, you know, you go to the, your, your national trade show and you walk in the room. You're one of the smallest businesses there. But if you walk in with Blue Hawk, as a Blue Hawk member, you're one of the biggest. And, you know, and that makes a difference. In, in the conversations you have and 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 how you operate your business you you're, you're part of a group that's as big as anybody in that industry and um and and that's that's important particularly in an economy that's changing as fast as ours is and I, I'm and on... you also have all these business partners that you didn't have you were out there all on your own trying to run your business as best you could and now you've got 
300 people you can talk to about everything they, and anything. what are they doing and how they're doing it. Yeah, everything and anything. I'm on Blue Hawk's webpage, and they mm-hmm. literally do have members throughout the U.S., mm-hmm. and most yeah. of it toward the east, which is interesting, mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. from Chicago to the east, uh, from New Orleans to the east, Texas. This is mm-hmm. wonderful. Okay, so what I what I find interesting is six months to get it started because worker co-ops seem like it takes a couple years to really get mm-hmm. people trained up and knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also understand that for co-ops, 90% of co-ops are still in business after five years, where I've been told that for capitalistic businesses that start up with one person, two persons, that only about 10 or 15% are still alive after five years. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just the opposite for survival. And the sense of it is that is because of the training that goes into it and the shared, having somebody in there with you to make those decisions. Right. And I suspect that there's probably, I don't know this, this is totally speculation on my part, but that there's probably a lot of co-ops that are considered that don't get launched. That the members, for whatever reason, hmm. just don't just don't say, well, we're not going to do this. Either it looks too hard for me or it doesn't have enough value for me. So I think you may have, in those numbers, those statistics, it may be that that by the time a co-op gets to the point of actually being launched, you know, it's really been vetted much more so, you know, because if you and I wanted to go together and form a business, we could have it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one could stop us. You know, if we were, if we were poorly organized or it was a really bad idea, you know, no one's going to tell us no necessarily, but in a co-op, you know, you gotta, you gotta sell that idea to other members who are going to join and put their money in. And, 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 you know, if you can't make the case, they won't join. And you, you, you probably won't even start. That's an interesting piece to it. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's just so there may be some internal vetting or mm-hmm. with the co-op through that training and marketing part of it, promoting it, the business. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, there may be a screen up front, I think, that maybe helps us get the the bad ideas out before they get started. So I shouldn't you, say bad ideas, but the, 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 the things that are not feasible get stopped before they get started. Right. Got another example? Well, um, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about my work overseas. I mean, a, a lot of that is with groups that are already started, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, but they either want to strengthen or they want to maybe improve their practices in terms of how they're operating. And so, you know, the the, the challenge you have is is, you know, obviously, and if you look at most of my work's in Africa. So if you look at the just the scale and the dynamics that, you know, if you've got farmers that are, you know, their land holdings are as small as what we discussed, you know, five acres, you know, they're taking a certain amount of that production, they're using it for their own family. And so what they market can be very small. It can be maybe 500 to $1,000 worth of product a year. But the exporters, the, you know, the buyers of that product are really quite large companies. And so, you know, so you start to think about what it takes to do the aggregation. You know, so these co-op systems will have, you know, 80 to 150,000 farmers in them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, aggregating from these, you know, small village clubs up through a series of collection points, which are oftentimes cooperatives. And so, um, and at the very base level, they'll be managed on a day-to-day basis uh, by the 
by the board members, by the managing board, who are volunteers and who are farmers, and oftentimes they're they're low literacy. So let's put a pin right there. We're going to go our final break, and I want to come back and hear more. Just I'm excited. Okay, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on. This is Vernon Oaks. Everything Cooperative is the program. Rosemary Mahoney is our guest who has just done a lot of great work in the cooperative world. And Rosemary, before we took break, you were talking about your experience internationally helping develop cooperatives. Could you continue that conversation, please? Yeah, sure. So as I was saying, um, you know, so a lot of these farmers are also, um, there's, you know, low literacy and, and, and they're running their farms. And so, um, you know, if you really look at, 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 at these village-based cooperatives, they're kind of your, your, they're your bulking, your aggregation entity. And so, um, but the farmers, like anything, it's, it, it, you know, it's it's really important that there's a great there's a high level of trust there, and that people understand that if I'm in leadership role in this cooperative, you know, there's a duty of care there, right? That 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 I'm responsible for um, making sure that we're we're you know I may not have you know financial statements, but I can still have systems that are appropriate to to the scale of my operation and what we're doing, and that it's important that we adhere to those, right? So that farmers trust that that cooperative is a place they can take their product, be paid, the product will be handled properly, it'll be, you know, it'll be sold and 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 that, that farmer's interests are being represented through the co-op. And so, you know, a lot of the work I've been doing here lately is really around um, you know, kind of leadership training programs and 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 structures to to help kind of build that knowledge and that, you know, help people work through what it means to run a co-op. A co-op and and to be a leader and leader in their community uh, to do that and then you know the levels above that then they become a little bit more sophisticated in terms of you know their accounting systems and stuff like that and so we have we've developed programs and training courses called the Agri Business Leadership Program that will that will provide uh, capacity building for both these you know kind of basic village-based cooperatives but then also the the larger ones that sit upon those that are a little bit more sophisticated, maybe have hired managers, that sort of thing. And so it's 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 work I'm doing with the International Finance Corporation, and it's um, which is part of the World Bank Group. And so you know the bigger piece for IFC is that they're looking at some sort of a credit facility, typically, so to try to get improve the access to credit to these organizations that are serving farmers. What part of the world are you working in? Um, let's see, I've love us in West Africa, so Ivory Coast, Cameroon, and that's cocoa, cotton, cashew, and then I've been doing some work in East Africa, which is um World Food Program, which so that's you know, um you know, World Food Program buys from local organizations and farmer organizations, but then they distribute the food within the region where there's places of food shortage, so they're buying pigeon peas and make corn and you know things like that that um that they distribute then uh to other parts of the region and then um 
Ethiopia. That's chicken, mm-hmm. poultry, and uh, barley. So barley cooperatives. The poultry part was not cooperatives. But, and then where else? Malawi. So those are where I've been to in the last year. <laughs> do you travel a lot, too, to all of these places? I do. I do. I am. Um, here lately, I've been, I've been going to Africa for maybe three to five times a year. But then I also travel quite a bit in the U.S. For, for my work. Okay. And your address is in Virginia. It is. I live on a small farm south of Charlottesville. So when do you have time to farm? <laughs> well, <laughs> that part of my life didn't work out. <laughs> I was going to be a, uh, we were going to, you know, farm and take and take product up to the farmer's market in Charlottesville, which we did for a number of years. But uh, we decided that with the rest of our uh, lives was a little bit too complicated. So, we, you know, I have a, a big house garden that um, is really well maintained when I'm home and poorly maintained when I'm traveling. Okay. So it's one of those deals. I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes catching up on it when I come home from a trip. Question. Do you like what you're doing and like what you have been doing in your life? You know, I do. I feel really lucky. One of my nieces asked me that the other day, you know, you know, how did you get into this? And I, I feel you know, same thing you said earlier, Vernon, when you, you know, found cooperatives, you thought, wow, this is a fantastic model for what I'm trying to do. And for me, it's, it's been fantastic in terms of, you know, the community, the people I know, the, the work I do. I feel like, you know, when we're successful, we really help others be successful, right? And, you know, and, you know, and it's interesting, it's incredibly interesting to be able to travel and go to all these places. It, it's difficult. It's hard. It's, Mm-hmm. It's hard because the progress can be so slow, and you question at times whether it's making any difference. But you know, what if we didn't even try? You know, <laughs> that you're at least giving people an opportunity to succeed in a situation where they're, you know, they are the without question, you know, the smallest entity in the room. So, so the reason you, I, I hear not, not just like the reason you love what you're doing is because you're helping other people help themselves mm-hmm. is that kind of yeah yeah ultimately and i and i really you know i, I do consult i really like consulting for me because it it allows me to work in a lot of different not only places but a lot of different industries a lot of different channels so yeah you know, i'm bringing cooperatives that's what i know but i can bring it to a lot of different channels and a lot of different um situations and so then I, I'm constantly learning, you know, learning things I didn't know. Like I, I didn't know anything about HVAC. It was the guys I worked with that taught me that. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know anything about co-ops. So, you know, it works really well. So so <laughs> the, reason, the reason I've got is the, the values, the cooperative values, the ethical values are honesty, openness, social responsibility, mm-hmm. and caring for others. Mm-hmm. And when you look at those values, to me, that's why. And everybody in four and a half years, I've asked that question, and I've asked it to most people on the show. It always comes. I love what I'm doing, and mm-hmm. it normally mm-hmm. comes down to those values and seeing those mm-hmm. values get implemented and seeing people. Um, let's say it another way. Dame Pauline Green yeah. said on this show she was the president of International Cooperative Alliance. Cooperatives mm-hmm. help people come out of poverty with dignity. 
Yeah. Yeah. Pauline is great. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, in some ways I've been, I've been thinking about this, you know, if, if you look at kind of the American myth or the American narrative about, you know, the strength of the individual, right. That, that, that we're built on individual uh, endeavors, but you know, the reality is, you know, nobody succeeds alone. Right. And so in some ways cooperatives themselves are the counter narrative to the American myth, but I think they're the truth. I think that, I think that the thing of the individual is the myth and the, 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 the collective action that we do through cooperatives, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. What's made this country successful and what gives people opportunity. You know, yeah. or if you, you know, only Lewis and Clark, you know, went West on their own. Everybody else went with a group. I mean, and they had a group and you don't, you don't get wrong, but you know, yeah, there was still you know a group. I mean? it would, they, yeah. 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 But um, they couldn't have done it alone. So you love what you're doing. Now, I want to, we only have a little bit more time. Co- co-op metrics. Mm-hmm. I have a sense of that, but what, what do you all do there? Okay. So our, our, our name now is Co-Metrics. Um, mm-hmm. And we're hybrid. We're a, um, a hybrid cooperative, so we're both a worker. So we have a worker component, we have a consumer component, and then we have a, a, a membership group that's um, also the founders who help start Cometrics. And we provide financial and operational benchmarking to um, to support the development of individual businesses, nonprofits, and cooperatives. You know, so. You know, our it was Walden Swanson and Kate Sunberg who, who started Cometrics, and you know their view was, and they were working with food cooperatives, was that if you look at the competitors of a food cooperative, you know, 30 years ago, so Whole Foods was getting started, all these other groups, you know, one thing those guys had that the co-ops didn't was an ability to look and compare all of their stores, right, and see what was working and what wasn't, and to make that change all the way across. Food co-ops were operating without that comparative data, and so Cometrics was built originally to allow the food cooperatives to have that sort of comparative data to where they could start to identify best practices, set targets as a group to, to improve their own performance. And it was Chuck Snyder who went to Walden and said, geez, other independent businesses could benefit from this. And so he, Walden formed co-op metrics at the time and started offering the services into other communities. So we benchmark um, independent businesses and nonprofits. Well, for those that don't know, Chuck Snyder is the president of National Cooperative Bank. Um, He's our sponsor today. Yes. He's been the sponsor (laughs) for four and a half years. If it wasn't for his encouragement, not just the dollars, but his just sort of brought him an idea. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. Let's let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He's great. He has a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for this, for the, I mean, just the the idea that we we need to be working to spark more co-ops and to help people succeed last minute what do you want to leave people with what do i leave people with Mm -hmm. huh it's much easier i just answer your question (laughs) um (laughs) i guess you know i just feel like this is the good people's work and we just got to keep doing it and and be thinking about ways to get better one one question i'm brainstorming in my mind and i don't have the answer is you know we've got a business model that comes out of the what do you say the, the 19th century in a in a world that is changing incredibly fast, is there ways that we can take the core of that business model, that business concept, and make it work even better in, in what's happening right now? And before he 
cuts us off. I think the reason is what's what's common is what's been there all the time, and that is that caring for one another, working together as groups, that's what's there no matter how much change, that being community. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. The community's coming together in different ways now, and that's that's um, something we have to have to think about. Because I think people do. I think they're hungry for authenticity, mm-hmm. and I think that's something cooperatives really, really well, have. Rosemary, right. thank you so very much, and everybody out there, please have a wonderful week and work cooperatively, live cooperatively. We'll see you next Thursday. Thanks, Rosemary. All right. Thank you. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.